Thank you for joining with us today. And uh, thank you for being part of Promise Church. We're really, really glad that you are a part and that we're able to continue to worship God together. Today is our fourth sermon in preparing for the presence of God because God's presence is worth preparing for. So the first sermon, we went through God introducing himself to an individual and calling ground sacred, a holy space where he can meet with God. And that continues on through the story of the Bible. We then have, uh, we have the authority of scripture. In sermon number two, we went through all of that. In sermon number three, we talked about how God won't accept any substitutions because all substitutions are smaller than him. They, they are a shadow of his greatness. And so God is adamant that he wants us to look towards him as he removes the veil to see his greatness and who he truly is. Today, we've based a lot on the history and the authority of scripture, but today we're gonna go through the narrative of scripture. Today we're gonna actually tell God's story as a grand narrative, and I'm going to attempt to put the entire string of God's story together right in scripture in one sermon. And so uh, we're going to enjoy, and hopefully this gives you a, a timeline and a marker by which you can start to understand God's revelation of his self and how it's relevant to us today in our experience of church. So let me pray. God, as we fly through your word today, we're going to go cover to cover all the way, and not just through the history of the word, but find ourselves in, in where we are in church culture today and ultimately the end goal of where you're taking all of us. And God, I pray that as we go through what is called the meta-narrative, your meta-narrative, God, I pray that it would open up our eyes to see your greatness, to attach our expectation of your presence to the story of how you want to be engaged with us and be with us as Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus, I pray that today you would prepare our hearts, that if there's uh, a lot of content here, I pray that people would be able to absorb it and, and remember it. And uh, thank you that this is on video today because maybe they can pause it if they need to and rewind and go back and see it again. But however, um, however it goes, God, I pray that, that we would come out of this with an idea of your story. In Jesus' name, amen. Wonderful. All right, so let's jump right in because it's really, really important that we see the progression of God's revelation. Remember, right at the beginning, God is existing. He exists, as we know, um, as three persons, the Holy Spirit, the Word, and the Father. And the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, so, so it becomes Jesus. But we have these experiences all happening right in the beginning, where, where they are in perfect, loving relationship with each other. And something that we've learned in creation and in, in history is that love is one of the greatest creators. And so love creates. And so God, in perfect, loving relationship, creates and, uh, and he creates the heaven and heavens and the earth. In whatever way he does it, that's not the, the focus of our study today. Today our study is not our story or our you know, beginnings, but God and how he's going to reveal himself. Starts with God as creator. <clears throat> and, and God creates two individuals in a perfect garden. Now, 
we get this perfect garden in, we call it Eden, and it's actually located in a physical space on the, on the earth. It's located between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, which is in current day Iran, and it uh, is this beautiful place. Now, what's really interesting about that is that, is that uh, sociologists and, and studies of history would suggest that, that civilization actually birthed very near to that same location. Um, and so we see that God is birthing a civilization. He's birthing something. So God created two people in this space. He created Adam and he created Eve to be in relationship with each other, the counter of each other, the, the complement, the helpmates of each other, that they're able to work together to build relationship with each other in a very, very close, vulnerable setting. And that was, their, that was their goal. There they were in the garden. They had three purposes in the garden. The first purpose was to care for the garden. That was their work, to care for and expand the order of the garden. It wasn't like all of the earth was garden. It was this area was this ordered and beautiful garden. And their job was to expand it and care for it. The second purpose was to live in vulnerable and close, intimate relationship with the other humans, and in this case, other human. And so they are to live together in loving relationship, united, vulnerable, open to each other. And the second purpose was to live in the presence of God. The Bible says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, and they're to live in the presence. And what we see here are three really, really big themes of Scripture in which we will be able to build our foundation of our understanding of God. These are very, very important for us. So <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to go from the garden because in the garden, there, it wasn't just enough for humanity to experience that in this perfection that was there with their roles, with their goals. It wasn't enough for them. They actually wanted more. They wanted to, to be able to judge between good and evil. They wanted to see what the difference was. They, they really wanted to start to take on the role of judge or governor or the one who is ultimately in charge. And so they partook of a tree of knowledge of good and evil with the understanding that that would make them like God, that they would be able to level up from their created place, that they would be able to level up and become equal to God. And in doing that, in that selfish move, in that move of self-promotion, they broke a few of their purposes. One of the purposes that broke was to care for the earth. And in this, because they put themselves above where they were supposed to be, they actually neglected the earth and it it did not produce fruit for them any longer. That was part of the curse that God said, it will not produce fruit anymore. It will not work for you. It will not be the way it was. The second thing that broke was they recognized that they were vulnerable. They recognized that, that they were too intimate, too close. They, they needed their own sense of personality and autonomy. And they needed to be able to say that they were their own person. And so they actually put clothing on. They separated themselves from each other. And, and we see the breakdown of relationship. Human to human relationship starts to break down. And in the curse, we see that one will serve the other and there will be a tension back and forth between 
the two. And, and as we see it in the story, there's a tension between the genders, the, the male and the female. And, there's, and, there's, and we've seen that all throughout history work out with this tension between the two of them. And the third purpose that was broken was the connection with God, God's presence with them. Because they tried to become like God, they actually were humbled to become even less than they were. Instead of gaining, gaining ground on God, they lost ground. And God removed himself and veiled himself from us, from us as a creature, from us as a creation, from Adam and Eve as people. God veils himself. The rest of the story is how does God, from a veiled place, reveal himself to all of humanity again? How does God restore the closeness between God and human? How does God restore the relationship between human and human? How does God restore the original vocation of God uh, of, of humans caring for created order and created space? How does God invite humanity into our into his presence? That's what our story is about. So we've seen the problem. The problem is that humanity tried to level jump. And now God has pulled back. What happens from there is we have a, uh, Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. They're trying to ascertain how do we please God? How do we make it work? How do we make it right? And so Cain and Abel, um, they offer sacrifices to God. Cain, Abel, from the best that he has, Cain in due season, when he finally got something, he kind of cobbled together a sacrifice. And God didn't reject God didn't accept Cain's offering, and he accepted Abel's, and that made Cain jealous. Cain kills Abel. A further breakdown of the relationship of human to human, a breakdown of relationship in the occupation of what it is to be human, and a breakdown of relationship with God. And we just see it devolving, and it gets so bad that by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, that there was nothing that was happening right in the world, and the evil was so great that God repented of creating. It made God so heartbroken that he repented of creating humanity. And he was like, why did I even do this? They are adding evil upon evil. And the only solution was a restart. And so God, in his wisdom and in his ability, revealed himself to Noah. And we get the story of the flood. And the story of the flood is a very important story because at that time, God is cleansing the world of evil. He's cleansing it of, of it's not that the, how do I want to say this? It's not that the people, that God hated the people, it's that the evil was so great that the people could not be redeemed, that, that it was so far removed, that there was nothing that God could do to honor their will and reveal himself. There was nothing that he could do. And so they're removed and we have Noah and his family remaining and restarting. And God says, I'm never going to do that again like that. I'm never going to do it like that again. 
So as generations go on and we get, we get the people of the Chaldeans who live in uh, the map. Let's, let's go to the map where we see uh, the, the Fertile Crescent. So the Fertile Crescent is an ancient Near Eastern map that shows Mesopotamia and Babylon on the, uh, on the north and on the east sides of the world. Um, there's a great wilderness and desert. And then you come down near the Mediterranean Sea on the eastern side of the, of the Mediterranean Sea is Israel, but it's, it's just nation after nation, all these, all these small nations. And there's always a clamoring for this because this is a trade route between great empires, the, the Mesopotamians, and then the great power down in Africa of Egypt. And, uh, and so this becomes the Fertile Crescent, very beautiful land. And, uh, and so that's, that's where all of this is happening. But we get, we get from the Chaldean, from the land of the Chaldeans, which is uh, in the bottom corner of the Fertile Crescent to the east of, uh, of the Mediterranean, far east. This is where a man named Terah is called by God. Seemingly arbitrary, there's no real lead up to Terah um, in terms of the biblical narrative. It's just a man who has a family and he's called by God to, to travel west towards a place that God is going to plant his family. Well, Terah makes it as far as Hebron, which, which takes us up to the northern part of, of what becomes um, well, it's, it's near Nineveh in Mesopotamia, and, uh, and, and it doesn't come down into the trade route, but it's right on the cusp of what the Mesopotamian empires would, would be. And so, so he comes to this place, and he rests here, and he dies, but he has a son named Abram. And Abram takes over all of Terah's people and, his, and, and that family, and, uh, and Abram gets called by God, the second generation to be called by God. And God calls Abram with a promise and says, I will give you a nation. You will be my people. I'm going to give you a nation. And your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Well, that's a promise that God offers to Abram. And because Terah followed God, Abram also follows God and this promise is ratified. It's something that happens with what becomes known as a covenant. So Abram makes a covenant with God. His name is changed to Abraham, and he has a son named Isaac. Isaac is an important character um, in, in Scripture because he is, uh, he is the son of the promise. So that's what's happened here. We've got Abram following the promise of God, moves down into the, this tribal region that God says, it's from here to here uh, that I am going to give you this land and your descendants this land. So I want you to make your inhabitant here. I want you to live here. You're going to be this people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So we get from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob has 12 children. Jacob's 12 children become very important for us because they actually carry the names of all the tribes of Israel. That's where we get our 12 tribes of Israel from these people. And so Abraham has, has these children and Joseph is one of these, one of these children of Jacob. 
And Joseph has these dreams, and we've heard of the story of Letma, of, of, of all these people are going to bow down to me, and my brothers are going to bow down to me, and, and, uh, and they throw him off into slavery. And we've heard that story, but it's attached here to God's generational promise and his generational showing himself faithful. So we're at Joseph is now our fourth generation away from Abram who had this promise that God was going to give them land. And so they don't have their land yet, but now they're creating a tribe. Joseph is one of the 12 children and they're creating a tribe. But Joseph is one of the youngest ones. He's the second youngest one. So he doesn't have a lot of stance. He doesn't have a lot of authority or posture in the family. Anyways, he gets sent away and gets sold into slavery. And through his ordeal, he becomes a ruler of Egypt and calls his family, his 12 brothers and his father, down into Egypt. This is how Israel ends up living in Goshen. This is how Israel ends up becoming a nation. God has promised Abram that his, that his descendants would be father of many nations. This is the first. And so we see that this promise is starting to happen. So now they're down in Egypt, in Goshen, and they get to be powerful. They get to be a great people in this land. And the Egyptian authorities get intimidated by them. The Egyptians start to say, wait, we need to control these people who are invading our land. They're just taking over. There's no check to where these people are coming from. They're not us and they're different than us, and so we don't like them. And so they started owning them. They started overpowering them with military might and making them slaves. This is the Israelite slavery in Egypt. We know that our next story from a couple sermons ago, Exodus chapter 2, gives us our next story, which is Moses. God raises Moses up in his story. What is he doing? God is starting to create a nation in which he can reveal himself to the whole world from. That's what's happening. We're at the beginning of God saying, all right, I had a person, then I had a family, and now I have a nation. And so God purchases the Israelite nation out of Egypt by using the plagues and by using this great exodus moment where, where these people escaped the greatest military people of their time by walking through a sea. Only God could have done that. And so they marked that down and said, this is what happens. They walk through the sea and they are freed from their overlords and God starts to define them. And he says, I am the Lord your God. That's what we talked about last week. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I own you. I am revealing myself to you. And he reveals the way to live, the kind of ideal that he has for the people. And he says, when you live like this, I'm going to bless you. So the people of God are introduced to a way to meet with God huge moment in history happens when Moses introduces them to the tabernacle, the presence of God who is going to encamp with them. And this happens in Exodus 25, that the presence of God is going to camp with the people of God in the center of the people of God. All of the 12 tribes of Israel, actually the 11, would, would, would surround the tabernacle, and the twelfth tribe would be the Levites who cared in the center for the tabernacle. And so they would surround, as in protecting 
the presence of God and their whole world system in the desert and even later was centered literally on the presence of God. They were centered, everything revolved around the presence of God. And so very, very important. As Israel goes into the land and they start to fulfill the promise of God, God showing his faithfulness, uh, the promise of God was made to Abraham. They start to go into the land and start to start to take it over. As they do that, um, they, they, they divide out the land and the tribes become tribal. They, they run on their own government. They, they start to create their own way. And we go through a time called the judges. And as we see the judges, the judges are people who God continues to raise up. They, he continues to, uh, to show, okay, well, I'm still active. I'm still caring. And so the judges come together and they remind people of God. But then the habit is, well, yeah, okay, God did something, but I'm going to go do my own thing. And so the nation of Israel is kind of working as 12 different nations. There's no unity in them. But a man comes along named Samuel. In the book of Samuel, um, we, we see the birth of Samuel in Samuel chapter 2. And the story of this man of God who starts to prepare the way for a for a a nation that can stand united as a people owned by God, the people of God. So Samuel is able to hear the voice of God and God removes a veil where it's like, okay, here's a prophet. Here's the man of God. Well, the people start to look to Samuel as the, as the ruler, as the leader. And, uh, and then they get unsettled. They actually want a king. So Samuel anoints the first king of Israel, technically the second, but We'll go with the first king of Israel um, named Saul. Picked according to human standards, he was a tall, strong military man. And so that was, that was done with God's warning, but also God's blessing. And you see that actually happen in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, where you kind of get the warning and the blessing. One gives us a warning, one gives us a blessing. And uh, really important, actually, to recognize that First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles are the same history. One's, one's reported, Kings is reported with a pro-king image, and Chronicles is reported with a, with a negative image of the king. However, just really important for us to understand that. Samuel um, anoints Saul and then anoints David. David becomes the pinnacle of what it is to be a king. David becomes the image of God's man here on earth, coming to bring all things right, to restore the order of the garden, to restore the centrality of God, to restore the relationships of people. David is seen as this ideal person, this ideal king. Even with his flaws, even with his failures, David is seen as an important person. And we see David in 1 Samuel 16, that's where he's introduced. But we see him continually um, now etched into all of scripture from, from that point, 1 Samuel 16, that point on, David is referred to again and again and again. David intends to build a temple for God, but we don't see that temple start to come to, to fruition until 2 Chronicles chapter 2, where his son Solomon has taken over. 
Solomon builds the temple. And now Israel has actually realized the promise of God given to Abram that he will be made into a nation. And so we see that God is now faithful, that God has shown himself through the exodus, through the promise of God, through all of these fulfillment things that have happened. There's now a huge history in which these people are saying, this is God. And they build a temple to God. In 2 Corinthians or 2 Chronicles 2, we see the temple happen. And this stands, but only for a short time. This image happens for only a short time because these people who became united in a nation actually divide. By the time we get to Solomon's son, the nation moves from having 12 united tribes to 10 tribes divide off and actually become exiled. They get defeated by the Assyrians who came down from from the north and defeated them. And we see those stories happening in um, 2 Kings 18. We see those stories being reflected upon in all, of the, uh, in all of the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They're reflecting on the destruction of Israel first. The, the, top, 12, the top 10 tribes, the, the 10 tribes to the north, all get destroyed. And... It's so important that we understand that, that when these people did not follow the way of God, when they, didn't, when they weren't faithful, that, that God actually said, okay, I'm going to show you that, that in, in the plans that I made early, the laws that I gave to Moses, I said what would happen. I predicted what would happen if you didn't follow me. And it's nice to just look at a God that's like, oh yeah, if things go well, we say it's God. If things go bad, we say it's not God. In this case, God says, if you do something well, it will go well for you. If you don't listen to me because I, I'm the one that owns you, I'm the one that you have this deal with, this covenant with, then, then it's going to go bad with you and I will send it. So he's calling his shot, saying, if you don't follow my way, you will be overrun by other rulers by other rulers. And so that's what happens to Israel first. And then there's a time when, when, um, when Judah, which is two of the tribes of Israel, Judah holds out and they, they actually beat King Sacronib and, uh, and they, they fight him off. And, and God is saying, okay, I'm, I'm right here. And, and here's where we get the idea of Zion. Zion will not fall. Where the temple of God was built, um, where we have, where we have the central idea of God is our God, Zion will not fall. Well, that's really, really important. The mountain of Zion being God's place becomes really important as God reveals himself. He's like, I, am, I will not let this fall. Well, the crazy thing is, is that it does fall in a way. It, it, it gets taken by when Assyria came um, they, they actually started to run into problems. And, uh, and then Babylon came right afterwards and just completely subsumed the Assyrian Empire and expanded it. And Judah went into Babylon. And here we get the story of Daniel uh, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fit here. And now they are all taken into exile. And we get the minor prophets. The minor prophets are the 12 prophets towards the end of the, the Old Testament that are short little books. Well, these guys are telling us about the exile. These guys are telling us about what has happened. And uh, and so these guys are trying to figure out now, what are we going to do? 
What are we going to do? How are the promises of God understood and revealed? Well, we start to see that, that God made a promise to King David that he was going to bring a Messiah, a ruler, a person who was going to rule from the line of David all the way for all eternity. There was one coming who was going to fix all of this. And we get the expectation of Jesus. Jesus is built into the Old Testament through these ideas and understandings of exile. And now we expect Jesus. So by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, there's 400 years that we don't read much of, we're sure that God did this, or we're sure that God did that. We don't, we don't know what happened a lot of what happened there in terms of what God's story is, but we do know that there were messiahs that came up. People who said, oh, I'm, I'm from the lineage of David, and I'm going to rule, and I'm going to fight off all these enemies. And they were all defeated. And then we see the introduction of Jesus. And that's why John starts off with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Because John is telling us the big story all the way through. And he's saying, and this God came and dwelt among us. First, it's John 1.14. This God came and dwelt among us, the person of Jesus. And so we have Jesus now living with the people. And Jesus lives his life showing the kingdom of God and points us all to God. And, uh, and then Jesus dies on the cross and proves that he is Messiah in his resurrection. Paul, later on, says if Jesus didn't resurrect, then we don't have a hope. Jesus proves his Messiahship, that he is attached to David, that he is attached to this long story in his resurrection. But then he promises to live with his people, just like tabernacle, just like the whole system was set around the presence of God. Jesus envisions that the whole world is going to be set around his presence, and he foreshadows it through the Holy Spirit in the church. Acts chapter 2 is the revealing of the Holy Spirit, where Holy Spirit's poured out, and it's the presence of God in the gathering of his people. And this is what we prepare ourselves for on a Sunday, that the Holy Spirit comes and gathers with us, where we are now experiencing the presence of God, the same presence of God that, be, that was the central presence of all of Israel, is now what we experience on a Sunday morning when we gather, the Bible says where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, he is there present in their midst. And so we have the Holy Spirit working with us. And we look forward to a word called Maranatha, which is come Lord Jesus. We acknowledge that our ownership is on ourselves is not ours, but we've offered it up to Jesus as Lord and Savior, the one who will come in and rule. The, the Bible, and last week I talked about Isaiah 9, where the government will rest upon his shoulders, where everything will be made right. He's the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And so Jesus comes and rules, and we say Maranatha, which literally translates into, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly, because Jesus, we expect to return. We expect that that person of Jesus comes and assumes the rulership of this entire world, restores the order of caring for the creation, 
restores the order of vulnerability and closeness in relationship and restores the order of God with us. And we are invited into this perfect loving relationship with the Trinity. So there's our story, the meta-narrative of Scripture, how God reveals himself all the way through using the idea of his presence and revealing it in greater understanding to each one of us. God, that was a lot. Wow, we just went through a lot. And uh, I just pray that, that we can see a narrative where you are a God who wants to be with us, who wants to restore the proper order of things, who wants to make things right. God, I pray that we would, would submit to that, that we would give ourselves to that rule, to that ownership, and that you would be glorified. I pray that, that our sense of reading the scripture would be enriched by the great narrative where we could start to see where things fall into place. And I pray that you will bless this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.